the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Pro-America Report. Great to be together. And it is, um, well, there's a ton happening in Washington, D.C. in the swamp. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something else that has to do with, well, I think the best indicator I can see of where uh, the country is in terms of their frustration. So don't forget, by the way, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and there you will find all the links to these segments as well as you will find, <coughs> excuse me, a, um, uh, a, li- a box to fill out and sign up for the Daily Wink. What you need to know is an email that goes out at 8 a.m. East Coast time, uh, 5 a.m. Pacific time, into your inbox, and you will get three or four key things. One, you'll get some articles for the day that highlight what I think is important. Number two, you will get uh, some links to uh, to commentary. So more, instead of um, stories, it'll be editorials, uh, opinions. And number three, you'll get my take on one of the key issues of the day. And that's where we get to what we're going to do right now. People, I was I was actually preparing. You may know I do a, a three minute radio commentary. It runs at the end of the show each uh, day. I do it a daily a daily radio commentary on about four hundred stations, and I have to record them about two weeks in advance. So you sort of have to guess what the issues are going to be. So if I'm recording a commentary uh, yesterday for two weeks from now, three weeks from now, you're kind of guessing what the future will be. But some things you can talk about that will have saliency into the future. And so sometimes I talk in a little bit more generalities on this. But one of the recordings I was uh, working on today had to do with gas prices. And here's what you need to know. People that don't care at all about politics. I'm not even talking about the people that, uh, that you know, don't care for either party or anything, but still care. I'm talking about people like that I know over my life that just don't care. They, they don't want to be bothered. They're not even thinking about it. But what they care about is building their lives. And what they care about is how things are going. And so in the last about three weeks, since right before Thanksgiving, I have had four or five conversations with people like that. Friends from high school, one buddy from uh, college, another cousin of mine. And the one issue that comes up every time, in some form, not always the first thing, is gas prices. And people, now a couple of those people, my brother is one, he has a truck. And so when he fills up his truck, it's more than $100 to fill it up. And that makes him nuts, right? So, but some of the other people just have a minivan for their kids, but they've noticed the massive increase in gas prices. Now, what you need to know is it didn't have to be like this, right? It's not, it, it, this is a conscious decision to change the policies of the previous, administ- previous administration. Because under Trump, and you could debate whether you wanted all of this, but the reason we got energy independent is that we had sort of a, a, an all of the above uh, uh, idea on energy. We did 
uh, public lands where we could safely drill, go for it. We did fracking where we could figure out how to make fracking work, especially Pennsylvania and Ohio and other places. Go for it. We did nuclear. There was some solar. There was some uh, some of the renewables. But primarily, we knew if we could get the regulatory framework out of the way, we have in this country resources, gas, natural gas. Uh, uh, you know, we, we have oil in the, all over in the Gulf. Keystone Pipeline, by the way, I've been on record. I wasn't my favorite thing. In some ways, the Keystone Pipeline was a uh, was a way for multinational companies to move product through the United States, not and down to the Gulf, uh, not necessarily benefiting. You talk to our friends in Montana; they would say Keystone Pipeline is bad for them because it bypasses them. But be that as it may, what we were doing was trying to increase in any way, with any um, sort of reasonable means. The amount of oil and gas in the market, out of the market, that we were selling. And so for the first time in decades, America became an exporter of oil and gas. Biden comes in and marches through, mostly by executive order and uh, executive management, regulations that have dramatically pulled back our ability to be energy independent. This is not a supply chain problem. This is not a problem with... China, the communist regime. This is a self-inflicted wound. And here's the real danger about it. Once you get in a position where you don't have enough oil and gas, you have to rely on OPEC and others. And so it's, it's, it's geopolitically a problem. But here's the real rub and the reason why I think more and more Americans feel like things are off balance. If your gas prices go up a dollar, two dollars a gallon, you can't escape that. In other words, you can if you're rich. If you're rich, you can travel less or you can build it in as a business expense. But if you're a normal person driving your kids to school, you can't not drive your kids to school. You know, if you're, if you're a normal person and you need your car for work or you need to drive to work, you can't not drive to work. I mean, you're boxed in. It is literally, well, that's not true. It's not literally. It is figuratively, but realistically, a tax on normal people. Because all of us have to pay that and we can't escape it. And that's a conscious decision. As I was preparing my commentary, I was reading the details, the choices the Biden administration made in just under a year, the choices they've made that directly cost the middle class, the lower class, the working class, small businesses. It's extraordinary. And even in the places where, say, uh, fuel prices go up, say, on the... um, on airlines, on jet fuel, that still gets passed on to us if you want to travel. So what you need to know is the decision to make our gas prices go up was a decision. I mean, no one sat there and said, let's make it go up to $5 a gallon, but they could see what they're doing would have that impact. And it's devastating for people. It's devastating. And frankly, there's a lot of other things you can do. You can say dumb things about woke culture. You can debate abortion, all that stuff. When you start banging away on people's wallet, because of gas prices? Ask Jimmy Carter how that turns out. Doesn't turn out well. All right, that's what you need to know. Got to take a break. I'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment.
Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is nobody. He doesn't need an introduction. His name is Mark Meadows. Uh, for the last year of the Trump administration, he was right at the center. Probably the most extraordinary. Absent maybe World War II or a period of time where the country was at war, there might have never been anything like it because we had the coronavirus come uh, screaming into our lives, the pandemic. We also had the most extraordinary election cycle probably in history, certainly back to you know rivaling some of the, the great early uh, elections of our uh, time. And Mark Meadows was the chief of staff to uh, President Trump during that time. He's written a new book. It's called The Chief's Chief. It's out in uh, about uh, five weeks, and, and it will be, I imagine, a massive bestseller because of the insight. It's uh, Publishers All Seasons Press, and we'll make sure to put it all up on social media. So welcome, uh, Chief Mark Meadows. How are you, sir? <laughs> well, Ed, it's great to be with you and all your listeners, and and, and bluntly, uh, it is not a time to retreat. It's a time to reengage. And it was an honor serving President Trump. And in the book, I tell some of the behind the scenes stories. But as you know, uh, the, that last year of, of President uh, Trump's first term was really yeah. just uh, uh, a, a dynamic one, a difficult one. Uh, every decision was key. But I tell how the president made not only quick decisions, but some of the best decisions that saved lives, saved our economy, and ultimately uh, put America first. You know, um, we're talking with Mark Meadows. He's now over at the Conservative Partnership Institute. And uh, a lot of the folks have been guests on this show. Uh, Rachel Bovard is one of them. Cleta Mitchell, as you said, are charging towards the fight. Uh, back when you in, in your time, you'd been a businessman, successful businessman, ran a campaign for office, won, served in Congress, been a leader up there. But there's nothing like being chief of staff. I, I, even to, I did the governor stint, but you're at the presidency. But when when you look at um, how exhausting that year was for the conservatives, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives felt like, man, we put it all out there. Whether it was stolen or not doesn't matter. We put it all out there. We tried our best. We trusted the system. It didn't work. Uh, for a lot of people, what you said at the beginning, we've got to sort of take a deep breath and get ready to charge in because they, they, part of their game is to exhaust us. Well, it is to exhaust us and to, to discourage us. And, and I'll be the first to admit, you know, on January 20th, when uh, President and I said goodbye from uh, uh, the last time as our professional side of things, and, you know, I still talk to him almost daily now, uh, it, it was depressing. It was discouraging. You know, we, we had seen some voter fraud that had not only affected the outcomes, but uh, could, could potentially continue to plague us and that we're working hard to, to make sure we correct that. But here's the other thing. The left will not win if we stay engaged. There are more of us than there are of them from coast to coast uh, across the, uh, the uh, shining uh, plains of, of the Midwest <laughs> yeah. all the way to the coast of California. But here's the other thing that we've, we've got to understand, Ed is when we stay engaged and when the voice of the American people uh, continue to get highlighted, it makes a difference. It's making a difference right now in Virginia, where you see uh, mm -hmm. the Republican candidate for governor has sided with parents, parents that this DOJ and some in the establishment uh, of the Democrat Party have said are domestic terrorists, and yet uh, Youngkin has sided with them, uh, McAuliffe is sided with the teachers unions and what we'll see, I believe, is a Republican governor elected in Virginia. 
Yeah, I'm, and I live in the Northern Virginia now, so my listeners hear me often talk about exactly what you said. The the engagement, people are, are fired up, uh, as you say, and and I think it's uh, it is going to be a big uh, a big day Tuesday. The book again is the Chief's Chief. It's coming out in about six or eight weeks or so. We'll we'll promote it more as we get closer. But I, I want to ask you for a second about the experience of being in that White House. Uh, in this sense, uh, many five years ago now, I asked one of America's most decorated army men. Uh, his name is General Jack Singlob, and he's, he turned 100 a few months ago. And uh, I asked him about the deep state. This is about five years ago. And I said, you know, what's the deal with the deep state? Now, he was a founder of the CIA, the OSS. He was a kid in the OSS. He went all the way up through. He got fired by Carter, all kinds of things. And he said, it's not so much, Ed, that there is one set of meetings where they talk about what to do. It's that the bureaucracy ends up against you know, the, the position, the conservative position. And, you know, uh, we're talking again, Mark Meadows. Mark, when you're in that White House and you're watching a lot of big government being used against the, the, the duly elected president, like you may not like it, but if the guy wins the big job, he gets to say, I'm going to go this direction. And and I really, you know, I think a, a lot of um, the success he had was in spite of that. But I wonder, I'd shake my head and wonder what would have been like if there hadn't been the, the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, the Mueller investigation, if there hadn't been some of the DOJ and FBI shenanigans. And, you know, you're sitting in a chair. You have to do your job and, and get briefings on a million things, not just one thing. Um, but it, it is ex- extraordinary to see how much the, the, the bureaucracy seemed to work against President Trump. Well, they it did, and I, I cover that in the book. Ed. And here's the interesting thing: is he's uh, the general was right. It's not necessarily that they hold a meeting and say we're going to go after this particular issue. It's just constant throughout the entire bureaucracy. And sadly, uh, even in the Trump administration, where some of the people that were hired early on did not have the president's mm-hmm. back, and and. Uh, and what I told the president, uh, you know, leading into uh, September, October of 2020, I said, sir, we've got to be prepared uh, to let a lot of people go and 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 rehire. And, and he said, Mark, I wish we knew then what we know now. And, uh, you know, here was a business guy coming from New York, coming in. And yet uh, they tried to cancel his voice out each and every time whether it was at the State Department at Foggy Bottom or the Department of Defense over at the Pentagon, you know, they wanted to fight back oftentimes uh, against the president that really was uh, had a mandate from the American people to get things done. Uh, just like they try to cancel your voice out and all those that are listening right now, the left would love to make us silent. And uh, that's uh, we, we cover this in the book. We, we talk about how we need to continue to speak up in spite of of the left trying to this cancel culture kind of mentality that's going going forward uh, we're, excuse me. We're talking with Mark Meadows and Mark Meadows, of course, a chief of staff to uh, to the president of the United States, President Trump in the last year, the incredible year. Uh, he is now uh, one of the leaders of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Uh, he's he's over there with Jim DeMint uh, doing important stuff and uh, CPI dot org. A lot of the good folks there. Um, Mark, you were in business. You actually, I, I love this part. You, you had a restaurant first. Then you were a real estate guy. Then you went to Congress. Um, so you weren't you didn't get you were in Congress, I think, for six or seven years, not for 28 years like a lot of people. So you'd seen this whole thing when you look at what's happening in this country right now 
You know, when you look and you say, okay, we got inflation, you were in the restaurant business. I mean, I keep hearing from my friends that when inflation goes, when food prices go up, it just gets passed right on. You, you, there's no way you can hide when, when uh, the price of cooking oil is up 40%. When you look around this country, as much as we all feel like our basics are good, we have smart workers, we've got the right kind of people and all the, the system of living together, ultimately, it feels like we're sliding a lot and quickly. And can that be stopped before we're in real trouble? Well, we are sliding quickly. Can it be stopped? The answer is yes. Will it be stopped? I'm not as optimistic. Joe Biden has kind of a knock on wood mentality. He doesn't have a plan or a strategy. Uh, President Trump and I were talking about this just the other day. Uh, There are a number of things that could be done to make sure that gas prices come down, that the, the price of groceries come down, that the supply chain is fixed. And had uh, President Trump been in the uh, Oval Office when some of these things were confronting us, uh, we would have been working around the clock to get it done. Joe Biden is, uh, what is he, you know, he's, he's going a- across the pond to hopefully get more favorable press from the Pope, who wouldn't even, uh, <laughs> the Pope wasn't right. even willing to put him on, on live TV for uh, fear of what yeah. he might say. <laughs> he knows that uh, right. f- uh, falling uh, polling <laughs> is not good for him either. But, you know, here's the interesting thing is uh, when we look at what could and should happen, we've got to we've actually got to embark on a plan. We've got to quit begging OPEC for lower ga- gas prices. We need to unleash the 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 might of the uh, American uh, business community to actually do what we we know how to do is put people to work and quit paying people not to work. And uh, and sadly, all the policy coming out of Washington, D.C. right now is going the wrong direction. Um, but uh, we it, it is time again that we reengage all those that are listening right now, all all the folks that are listening to the sound of our voice. If they will not give up, we've seen tougher times than this in our uh, in our history. Uh, yeah. I'm optimistic that 2022 and 2024 will bring some better results. Right. All right. We're talking Mark Meadows. I just got a little bit of time, but I, I can't resist plugging my favorite idea. First of all, I want to make sure to say the book again is called The Chief's Chief by Mark Meadows. It's out uh, in a few, maybe five or six weeks. We'll make sure to plug it. And uh, and it is uh, everywhere you buy books, of course. Um, so but here's the thing, Mark. I, I if we win the House next year, you know, the Speaker of the House doesn't have to be a member of the House. So I've been I, I floated the idea of Speaker Trump, but that may be too much for people to take or he may not want. How about Speaker Mark Meadows? Because I'm being serious. <laughs> when i say this if we if we no, if I we elect you're but no but i mean and I'm, I'm, let me say why i'm serious I, I really don't mind who's the speaker but if we get a speaker who does the same old same old they come out and say we're gonna have a really good tax plan we're gonna have a really good regulatory plan the the maga differential in this country needs to see that the speaker is gonna be bold right and and i just don't know if we don't go bold i fear 2024 well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you're right. The speaker doesn't have to be uh, someone elected to Congress. Uh, here, here's what we have to do. is It cannot just be a speaker with an R behind their name. Uh, the right. auditions are happening now. Uh, I, I can't tell you. You and I know each other well. We know our, uh, from a standpoint 
I am one that believes that actions are what is required. People are tired of electing the same people and getting the same results, regardless of yep. whether they're a Democrat or Republican. And so I'm all in. It, the audition is open for who the next speaker is going to be. Uh, and if we can't find a member of Congress, we need to find somebody outside of Congress to become that speaker. Uh, Perfect. Uh, you know, I like that. I, I like that speaker Trump. That's pretty good. It may be too <laughs> too bold, but I like that pretty well. Yeah. It would be. I mean, and 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 then you could be you could be chief of staff to the speaker of the house too. This gets more and more historic. All right, I'll leave you go. Mark Mark Meadows again. He's over a very important CPI dot org, uh, the Conservative Partnership Institute. I told you Ed Corrigan's over there. Cleta Mitchell, Ray, Rachel Bovard, people that are really know how this uh, works. And he is, uh, excuse me, Mark Meadows is leading there. And again, his book is the Chief's Chief. We'll have you on again, sir. Thank you for the time and uh, uh, keep up the fight. We are, we're encouraged by your your words. We will uh, keep up the fight yourself. God bless you. Take care. Okay. Thanks very much. Mark Meadows, everybody. I'll put it all up on social media. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest has uh, been on a couple times now with us is the best-selling author, Martin Dugard. His newest book is called Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City of Lights. And uh, last time we were talking to you, Martin, I think you were on your way finally to get over to Paris and to France after you'd done a lot of research uh, on the Internet and all. And so, first of all, how was that trip? And when you see Paris now, you know, in the last month or whatever— and you've done so much study of Paris, what it was like. Do you sit there and you kind of recognize that, or is it almost like a whole new city? It's a whole new city. It's, um, you know, especially because when you know the events that have unfolded in a, in a particular place, like in front of the Ritz Hotel or on the Place de la Concorde right. or the Arc de Triomphe, um, it yeah. kind of gives you chills. You know, like when, when you know, I was walking up uh, the Champs-Élysées, and I, I can imagine the German, the Nazi army marching in in June 1940, you know, in a column of right. three abreast. Um, and then again, you know, August 29, 1944, the American army marching 24 abreast down the same same place that I was, you know, walking casually. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, but I guess, uh, but it's also a modern city now, right? So I mean, as as fast as it as fast as it can change, you kind of, I mean, some things are gone, right? I mean, it, I guess I, what I'm saying is, uh, it it would be um, you would know that, but nobody else would. They'd be walking past, and I know nobody else would, but a lot of other people would be walking past with no um, with no real reason to know what happened here. You know, it's, it's interesting because one of the reasons that the, the French surrendered the city to the Nazis was they didn't want their city destroyed. They, they thought the city was timeless, and they thought that, um, that it should mm. remain timeless. So if you walk through the city, I'm walking in the same footsteps of not just, you know, the, you know, German soldiers and American soldiers, but in the, you know, Napoleon and all these people, because so much about the city, while it's been, you know, different cars, you know, faster vehicles— right. So much of the city has is, is, is not changed at all. I mean, it's, you know, mm. you walk in the footsteps of Hemingway as you, as you walk into the Ritz. I mean, it's, it's very, right. very cool to, to know that, that you're in a place that has such history behind it. 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons. I mean, I, I've been to Paris, although I was uh, just a few days, but I lived in uh, Italy, in Rome, and that was the experience there. You'd be in Rome, and there'd be a fountain with water coming out of the fountain for you to get water, get a drink of that was 500 years old. And you, they say, oh, my 500 years old. Like, it's uh, things have not been. Okay, uh, again, we're talking to Martin Dugard. His book is Taking Paris, uh, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. Here's one story I don't, I can't imagine Americans knew, detail. And that is that Patton, at the end of the, towards the end of the book, you wrote, long after historians stopped writing about his march to the Rhine, General George S. Patton will be immortalized for taking Paris. But the fascinating thing here is that he was, he was approached to try to change Eisenhower's mind. They were not going to take Paris. They had to beat the Germans. They had to beat the Nazis. They were planning to keep going across the, the uh, France. Uh, uh, yeah, France. And uh, Patton actually declined. He said, I'm not going to help. We got to go take that. We don't have enough gasoline. We don't have enough energy. We're not going to do it. And he changed his mind. Now, I, I never heard that. First of all, tell us exactly that story, and then I have a follow-up. Well, it's very true. Um, you know, George S. Patton, you know, he assumed command of the Third Army in August 1944, and he was galloping across France. I mean, he was pushing the German army back to the German border, and he was on the move. Um, when uh, when a member of the French Resistance found him, you know, came to his camp, he walked through the German lines, he came specifically to Patton to, to plead for Patton to enter the city. And there was mm-hmm. no reason to do it. You know, when you enter a city like that, you are... Um, morally obligated to feed them, to give them heating oil and cooking oil. Uh, and those are things that Patton oh. needs to keep his army moving. And so, huh. you know, while Patton did the right thing by convincing Eisenhower to pivot a little bit, enter the city, flush the Germans out, it cost Patton. By the end of August 1944, I mean, literally a week later, he was stuck near the German border and, and stopped because he was out of gas. And all that gas was going to the citizens of Paris. And there was nothing, um, there was no one Patton could blame but himself. But at the same time, you know, he did what he had to do, and it just, but it did extend the war by, I think, two or three months. You know, uh, but but even even more telling. Do, you, do how did you know that? How did you find that detail that Patton actually met with the resistance fighter and said, "Sorry, can't do it." Walked out and then went back. I mean, who had that in their in their uh, history? Was that in the was that in the? It wouldn't have been the resistance. Uh, probably was it in uh, maybe Bradley was the general that Patton and and the resistance guy had to go to next to try to go up the line. But where'd you find that? I'd never heard that before. It's just you dig and you dig. There, was, there have been several books that were written about um, the liberation of Paris that were written in the 1950s and 1960s while a lot of the participants were still alive. So there's a very good oral history of what happened there. And what I love about that story is it's not part of the, of the Patton legacy. You know, all yeah. The, yeah. You know, we think of Bast- we think of Bastogne. We we think of you know him slapping a soldier, but we don't know about that moment. And, you know, a nice touch of that moment was after he listens to this resistant talk about the need to go into Paris, you know, Patton says no. He changes his mind, goes back to his tent to go back to sleep, then changes his mind again. Remember, this is a guy who spoke French and had lived in France um, for several years. He gets a bottle of champagne and some glasses, walks back into the tent with the resistant, sits down, opens the bottle of champagne and toasts to the liberation of Paris. 
Yeah, I, that 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 gives me goosebumps to hear you tell the story. I mean, because I don't think anybody knows that, and it, it's all it's as you say, it's one of the great great things about it is it goes against type. I mean, Patton wasn't supposed to be the guy that <laughs> had any indecision or changed his mind, and dramatically, of course, I'm sure he did. He was human. It's a it's a great detail. Uh, speaking of that, Martin, how's the book been received? I mean, you've done a lot of best selling books. I bet you some of them you finish writing when you say that was a pretty good one, and it goes to the moon. Another one you write and it goes, and you say, well, that people didn't get it. How's the reception of this one going? No, you know, sales are very, very strong. We we're just off the New York Times list uh, the last two or three weeks. Um, people people get it. You know, we, last time we spoke, I kind of talked about what I tried to do with this book was to write a very fast moving thriller like yeah. history of, of of Paris. And you know, judging on the reviews I've seen so far, people get it. You know, every now and then people say that they want longer, more boring chapters, and I say forget it. You know, <laughs> People, people are enjoying the fact that it's a page turner and they're learning a lot about history at the same time. I was just listening. My sons are reading uh, Killer Angels in school, and I just was listening to it as an auto, as a book on tape. I was driving them somewhere, and I, I have it anyway, and I was listening. And it's Jeff Shara talking about his father yeah. and how his father wrote the when, – when he wrote that book, I guess it was the 70s. Yeah, it must have been like 70 – he was writing it from early 70s until maybe 74, 75, uh, and it published in 75 initially with no no success. But he, he Jeff Shara described that his father um, – and he resisted even till his death about 15, 12 or 14 years later all the calls to change the style it was really he did it as historical fiction he said that you know he got into everybody's brain but it was it transformed it right i mean there's now there's like a whole genre of that kind of writing is that what you've experienced with this with you and o'reilly now that you've written like this it's it's become its own because i think it's is it chris wallace or Kilmeade or somebody is doing like a three days at they're doing the similar kind of style maybe small pieces but not the writing um is like you said the chapters are so short is it has it caught on <laughs> yeah i think it has caught on I, some one reviewer recently i think just last week um called out chris wallace and said that you know he was deliberately copying the the killing series style and uh i'm flattered mm-hmm. you know I, i'm, a, I'm yeah. the guy who came up with, with that with that style and i sold it to bill and we've done these books together and I think I think we're seeing a changing of the guard with history, because you know people have a shorter attention span, but people also really uh, don't have that much time in the day anymore to to devote to things like simple pleasures like reading because there, there's so many uh, right. you know entertainment choices. So you know a book like this, you, you know people people love to feel like they're learning something, and and people also right. love the the positive feeling of finishing a chapter. So when you combine short, fast chapters with a lot of detail, a lot of nuance, and a big cinematic scope to it, it's only a matter of time before it catches on. I mean, I think we're going to get to the point where you're going to have your your traditional academic historian where you have, you know, it's dull and boring and slow, but it's just chock full of minutia. Right. Or you can, and I think, then you're, I think you're going to have books like Taking Paris and the Killing Series in that people are going to read it and they're, they're going to just keep turning the pages and they're going to learn about history um, and a subject that used to be boring to them is all of a sudden going to be fascinating and riveting the way that it should be. Right. Uh, Martin Dugard, again, the book is uh, uh, Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. I should say it's uh, the, uh, it's a Penguin Random House uh, imprint. It's called Caliber. Uh, you can get anywhere you get books. Uh, one last uh, question. When you go to Paris now, after you write a book like this, do you 
I mean, you didn't get to do research in Paris where you would have been sitting and talking to people. But do, do, do you I mean, do they notice? Do the Parisians realize it? Is it too early on this book? It would maybe next time you'd go. I mean, but do you how's the reception by the French? You know, as I was walking down the Tuileries, which is just across the street from the Louvre, and there was a English language bookstore, and I went in, and I was just looking for something to read on the plane home. Um, and right in front of me were copies of this book. <laughs> so to see taking hmm. Paris for sale in Paris was super cool. It was just one of those moments. I actually took a picture. It was I couldn't. I couldn't. Help I good. I, I was, was gonna. Really I was gonna. Uh, I was going to say, if you didn't take a picture, I was going to probably give you a little grief because that's the one you got to take a picture. I don't care. I don't care how many books you've sold, Martin. You got to take a picture of that one. That's uh, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, listen, and uh, keep on trucking. I know we talked about some other books coming, so good luck with this book. Keep continuing to sell and the and the all of it. It's great stuff. We appreciate your time. Yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. You're welcome. Martin Dugard, everybody. The book, again, is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City Lights. It's really good. He described it. It's a good book, the great topic, but also how it's written. It's easy to read and kind of uh, bumps along and, and, and keeps me engaged, which is uh, part of the thing. So thanks very much. And we'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Everyone knows how important securing the border is to Donald Trump, but even he is quick to point out that ending election fraud is even more important. Trump's leadership on election integrity puts him a mile ahead of almost every other politician. The never-Trumpers continue to deny the importance of the issue, which could result in permanent one-party rule by Democrats. If you don't believe me, look no further than California, where a groundswell movement to recall its tyrannical governor, Gavin Newsom, was shut down by a porous mail-in system that enabled unverified voting. Then California Democrats made their anything-goes style of voting permanent, which ensures it will continue to be a one-party state. The same could not be said in Iowa and the rest of the Midwest, where election integrity is taken seriously, and Trump is immensely popular, by the way. For example, Trump enjoys a 53% approval rating in Iowa, which happens to be the same number that disapproves of Biden nationwide. Future presidential elections and key votes in Congress will be decided by the Midwest. One of America's most famous paintings is American Gothic, which depicts a skeptical Iowa farmer standing next to his grim-faced daughter, armed with a pitchfork if needed to defend his farmhouse. That defense is needed now as the East and West Coast increasingly rob the Midwest on energy and other issues. Drought-ravaged California even banned gasoline-powered lawnmowers, which are necessary in the fertile Midwest on a weekly basis. There are virtually no oil, coal, or traditional car manufacturers in the Eastern or Western states, but all of those are fundamental to the Midwest. Clearly, Democrats have to make big changes on energy policy if they want any hope of having political energy in the next election cycle. Democrats will need to win three big states in the Midwest to hold on to the White House in 2024, while formerly bellwether states like Iowa go strongly Republican. However, Democrats are increasingly realizing that Donald Trump is no longer a New Yorker. He's a man with immense popularity in the Midwest. All the pronouns in the world won't save Democrats if they don't come to terms with the values that put the heart in the American heartland. From Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin. Election fraud has the power to destroy the America we know and love. 
Never again can we allow an election to be stolen. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find reasonable, workable strategies for assuring the integrity of every future election. Visit phyllisschlafly.com today. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, if you're like my kids, you don't want to hear any talk of uh, Christmas this early. My kids have a, 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 a an informal rule that they don't want to hear Christmas music until after Thanksgiving, but they don't even want to talk about Christmas stuff like shopping and all until December turns, no matter what. So this is their rule. I don't know why my kids decide to have this rule, but that's uh, where they are. So, But I'm breaking that rule. I'm breaking that rule right now because I want to tell you about a very cool opportunity if you go to uh, phyllisschlafly.com, I'll put it up on social media. There's a link there, and there we have a Christmas sale going on. Now, what's very cool about Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly, I mean, not just very cool about her. She was an amazing lady, but what is amazing, one of the amazing things about her is she was an incredible writer. And so we have already published volume after volume of her books. We call them Phyllis Schlafly Speaks. And you got on, on patents, on pro-life, on Donald Trump, uh, all there. And again, you go to this website, you can follow this. Also, there's um, the first reader, very popular. Phyllis Schlafly wrote a reading manual for children to read back in the day, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago. It's very popular these days. It's called The First Reader, and there's a First Reader workbook. Uh, you can find that there. You can also, there's tote bags, Phyllis uh, Schlafly tote bags, leather uh, pad-, pad folio. We actually have a copy. Uh, the other day, you may remember, I appeared on Larry Elder's um, uh, radio show. And in the midst of all the different kind of appearance I made, I have acquired over the years some of the key books of folks uh, like Larry Elder. His book is A Lot Like Me at tw- uh, out in 2018 in paperback about his relationship with his father. Phenomenal book. You buy that there. We've got some uh, uh, David Horowitz books, autographed uh, books that are around. We also have uh, Brian Kilmeade, uh, his book on uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pilots. Pilots. Pirates. If you uh, are upset they took down Thomas Jefferson's uh, a statue up in New York City. Here's a chance. This is a great history. Anyway, all of this is at this website. You can go there and check it out. Lots of books, including my uh, my uh, comic, excuse me, coloring books. Can't trump this Kofefe. There's a Christmas version. Uh, the most, the, the best book I can recommend. Really important for you to read is Phyllis Schlafly's book, A Choice, Not an Echo, which she updated in 2014. It was a a runaway, uh, multi-sold, I think, almost 2.5 million copies in 1964. Well, all those years later... Uh, um, 50 years later, she published an updated version and it gives you the best description of what's going on behind the scenes in the Republican Party and why it's so important to do that. So check it out. If you go, there's lots of gifts. About, oh, I want to meant to mention there's also called the Turbo Reader. Phyllis, when she did the uh, first reader, she then did a, a Turbo Reader, which allowed people to uh, uh, a different level of reading. You can get there. So another favorite of mine is Who Killed the American Family? Uh, extraordinary book written in 2014. You should get that. And then one last one I'll finish on. It's called The Supremacist. And it's uh, Phyllis writing about the importance, the tyranny,
tyranny of judges and how to stop it, the importance of the fight over judges. So a lot there. If you go again for Christmas, all these books, there's no supply chain problems. <laughs> there's no issues. You can sign up, uh, buy these books now. We'll get them to you. In just a few days, you'll get them for Christmas, and there really is something for everybody. If you have somebody that loves the pro-life movement, there's really nothing like uh, Volume 3 of Phyllis Schlafly Speaks. It's called, its subtitle is How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life, and it marches through how Phyllis Schlafly was able uh, to um, shape the platform of the Republican Party. It's an extraordinary history. It's got a description of, uh, of, of tactics to get it done. It's got description of the people that were against it. It's really great. Um, another book, by the way, that I recommend uh, to you is uh, if you have somebody who is a young person who's interested in being a speaker uh, and uh, speaking professionally, we put together, in fact, Phyllis picked this out before she died. The very first volume of her uh, writings is called Phyllis Shafley Speaks, Volume 1, Her Favorite Speeches. She pulled out a set of her favorite speeches, and we published them. And they're on every subject. They're on the military. They're on life issues. They're on patents. They're on the, uh, the um, economy uh, education, uh, one of her favorite topics, of course, the Constitution. She writes on that uh, in there. So that's a great one. And I, I've actually given that book uh, quite a few times to young people, our collegians uh, or someone that I know that just is interested in politics and policy uh, to show um, she Phyllis Schlafly was a writer her whole life. And she attributed the fact that she could write uh, that she wrote well and worked hard at it to helping her think clearly. You, you cannot be a loose thinker if you're writing all the time. You cannot. You just can't do it. And so she attributed that. And she wrote an extraordinary amount uh, in her long life. In fact, if you go to phyllisschlafly.com, you can see the button for the, uh, for the sale. But also, I'd recommend that you go there and you can look at her Phyllis Schlafly reports. Uh, she wrote so many um, essays, so many columns, and so many uh, reports. They called her PS Reports. It was a monthly report. I incredible uh, discipline, incredible uh, clarity. And as I often tell people, I can go back and look over the 50-year period where she was writing so frequently. I can go back and look, and I can track down almost any topic, uh, anything that was you know in the news she had written about uh, in some way. And her take is almost always uh, not just, it's not that it's unique. She didn't do things just to make it different, but it was, um, she had a way of seeing things, uh, that was different than most people. And so you could go and figure that out. So phyllisschlafly.com to find out more. And, uh, you want to sign on and you want to uh, pick up some gifts. And by the way, the proceeds go, of course, to our work, uh, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. So it supports us there. All right. So there's some Christmas gifts. If you need a gift to thank uh, Noah Dingley, our great producer, you can go there or Joanna Spilger, our great, uh, assistant producer who helps book these guests go there and get them a gift you can do it there so uh, more of that on social media thank you for listening we will be back uh, tomorrow it's ed martin here on a pro america report talk to you then this is the pro america report on the answer san diego three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.